0: Take God's word and turn to Romans 11, Romans 11, good morning everybody, it's great to see you all here this morning. We find ourselves this morning in our last message, our last sermon in the series on the five souls reformation. Romans 11. To begin this morning, I just have a question for you a question for everybody to answer, and a question for everybody to learn from. What is the chief end of man? Who has heard that question question before? According to the Westminster Confession of Faith, written in the 1640s by an assembly of 151 theologians, answers that question like this. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Now, we're not Presbyterian, right? But every single spirit and believer should with a clean conscience be able to let out a hearty amen to that statement. Your chief end is, thank you, to glorify God, meaning that your chief goal in life is to glorify God. The glory of God is the pinnacle, the summit and the crown of all theology. Everything we endeavor to learn, to master and perform should be for the glory of God alone. Not for self and not for man. The glory of God alone, soli deo gloria, is the preeminent truth the Reformation was about. They cried sola scriptura for the glory of God alone. If God's word is not the top standard, then God does not get the glory. They cried sola fide for the glory of God alone. If man can stand righteous before a holy God through faith alone, then God gets the glory. They cried sola gratia for the glory of God alone. If the way that a man can obtain salvation from the wrath to come is through faith alone, by grace alone, then God gets the glory. They cried solus Christus for the glory of God alone. If the object of our faith is is in Christ alone, and the grace of God is extended to us in Christ alone, then God deserves all the credit. Not any man. So, brothers and sisters, if you agree, then you agree also with the renowned apostle to the Gentiles. Because that's who the Reformers agreed with. And so do we. This man, Paul of Tarsus, penned the masterful theological treatise we know as the book of Romans. Which is where we will study today. In the 11th chapter uh, of the letter to the Romans, we find a text of scripture that clearly reveals that the glory of God truly is the chief end of man and is rightly considered the capstone of the Reformation. So let's read these precious words together, and to get a fuller, immediate context, we will begin reading in verse 33. Romans 11, beginning in verse 33. Paul writes to the Romans, O the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor? Or who has given to him that it might be paid back to him again? And then our primary focus for this morning, verse 36. For from him and through him and to him are all things to him be the glory forever amen up until this juncture in Romans Paul has been building an immovable tower in the first 11 chapters culminating in this great crescendo that is Romans 11:36 From chapter 1 of Romans all the way through 11, verse 36, is an ascent to the marvelous truth that justification is by faith alone. Sola fide. And it is on this basis, on that basis, where Paul extends and ends sentence after sentence with A doxology. After spilling plenty of ink, admonishing and instructing the Romans about how a man can stand righteous before God, he provides a summation of everything he stated and then an acclamation of praise towards God. Therefore, it's fitting for us to end our series today on the Soul's Reformation on the exact same note. One thing to keep in mind as we traverse through this very key verse is the background of Romans. I'll cover it succinctly. As you may remember or may have studied before, Paul's primary purpose in writing Romans was to teach the great truths of the gospel of grace to the believers in Rome. Because they had never received Apostolic instruction. And particularly, he intended to teach the believers in Rome that in order to be able to stand before the Father and be free from condemnation, through faith in Christ alone. They were in desperate need of that rich doctrinal instruction. They were also in need of some practical instruction as well. With regard to the relationship with the pagan government. Because the Romans were living under the rule of merciless tyrants. They lived under a governmental rule where human slavery was the norm, where the idea of separation in church and state wasn't even a figment in their imagination. They lived in a time where prostitution was prevalent, idol worship was commanded. ...and the people were overly taxed. And so the Christians in Rome... ...were the underprivileged... ...oppressed... ...minority by far. And... ...they were also... under Protest against the emperor... ...would have been punished with imprisonment... ...and rioting would l- literally land you... ...nail on a cross in public for people to see. These are the folks, these are the precious saints that Paul, the apostle of the Gentiles, is writing to. Keep these things in mind as we plumb the depths of Romans 11.36. Despite the harsh life of a first century Christian in Rome, Paul Paul nevertheless erupts with a concise yet heavy dose of theology and doxology in Romans 11:36. Romans 11:36 is a text of inspired scripture that makes up the grandest, most comprehensive, indicative affirmation that your chief end, your chief goal is to glorify God. What is your chief end? glorify god so i want to lay out this lay out this text before you under two main headings this morning the first is in the first half of verse 36 it's god-centered theology and the second half of verse 36 is a god-centered doxology and if you've never heard the term doxology or don't know what it means you will by the end of this message so first let's look at the God-centered theology in first verse, verse 36a. The God-centered theology in the first half of verse 36. It's been said that Christianity is a religion of prepositional phrases. In the first part in the first part of verse 36, there are three little prepositional phrases that sum up the entire landscape of Christian doctrine. One commentator said that these three short phrases compromise the entire Bible in miniature. And it's the most theocentric statement imaginable. So with what little time we have today, let's all try to grasp the theological gravitas of these three little prepositional phrases. The first one is for from him. For from him is eternity past. Meaning that God is the source of everything in heaven and under heaven. Everything you see and don't see originated from him. Colossians 1:16 and 17, for by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. You see the all things? All things means all things. He is the architect of all things. In other words, this first prepositional phrase underscores the fact that God is the creator and the master planner this world has not created itself out of nothing has it it is god whom has made and designed all things that exist for a specific foreordained purpose there's nothing that does not bear his name on it and there's nothing that comes to pass Lacking his stamp of approval. God not only drafts the plan. He does not only have knowledge. He is the executor of his own plan. He has foreknowledge because he is the one who planned it. History then. All history. My dear sheep. is not man's story. It's God's story. Ephesians 1.11, For God works all things, there's the all things again, you see Paul likes that, all things after the counsel of His will. Nothing comes to pass that has not originated from His creation and plan. All things are from Him. The second prepositional phrase is through him, through him, is within time. Meaning that God is the means by which everything is carried out. He is the administrator of all things, the cause of all things. In other words, the second prepositional phrase underscores the providence of God in history and current events. And here's what we mean by the providence of God, okay? The providence of God is this. One theologian defines it as the governance of God by which he directs all things in the universe. The providence of God is the governance of God by which he directs all things in the universe. Have you ever read Proverbs 16.33? Here's a life verse for you. If you struggle with discontentment and you struggle with anxiety, listen to this now. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Some translations say the dice are cast into the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. Don't ignore that verse. I think, by the way, we respond to circumstances sometimes. We act as if we've crossed that out of our Bible. Try to wrap our minds around that. Proverbs uh, 16.4 Proverbs The Lord has made everything for its own purpose, even this. Check this. this. This will blow your mind. This might even make you a little mad. The Lord has made everything for its own purpose, even the wicked, for a day of evil. The wicked is in the grip. Of God's master plan. Everything is through him. Now I believe the best illustration of God's providence. Which again is the doctrine that states God works all things. To come to the result that he wants. All things. There's no gray area. The best illustration of this is seen in the narrative of the Babylonian captivity. You guys remember your Sunday school, your Old Testament survey, the Babylonian captivity, about 600 years before Christ, Judah had reached a point of spiritual bankruptcy. They had turned their backs on God and worshiped false idols. So Yahweh. Being the just holy God that he is, judges them. And the way he decided to judge them, his own people. His own chosen priesthood, he decided to use an instrument, a human instrument to judge them. And whom does he use? He uses the pagan nation of Babylon. He uses Nebuchadnezzar's military to go into Israel and Judah and take it by force, sending them into 70 years of exile and captivity. That was no accident. Now, just so you know that I'm not making this up, listen to Jeremiah 34. This was a prophecy. Jeremiah, who's known as the weeping prophet, says, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Go and speak to Zedekiah, king of Judah, and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am giving the city into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he will burn it with fire. You see that? God speaking through Jeremiah, and he's saying, I am going to give the city into their hands. He goes on to say, the Lord says, you will not escape from his hand, for you will surely be captured and delivered into his hand. You will see the king of Babylon eye to eye. And he will speak with you face to face, and you will go to Babylon. you're all Bible students. You know that this prophecy was fulfilled to a T. And you can read about it in Second Kings 25. Just as, now this is important. Just as God turned the heart of Nebuchadnezzar to conform to his decreed will, his providence, he has turned the heart of every ruler in human history. And he will continue to control the affairs of this decaying world until he comes. All things are through him. How about this one? Proverbs 21.1. Whenever you're watching CNN or Fox News, keep this in mind. The king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever He wishes. He turns it wherever He wishes. Doesn't that blow your mind? It, it's hard for our fallible minds to get that, isn't it? So instead of just wrestling with, this, with, this, with these clear truths... Just, just take it as a comfort in knowing that God's in control. Just take it in knowing that God is not on a timeout. He's not on a vacation. He is actively, eternally involved in the affairs of mankind. All things are through Him. Not only is the Lord, through divine providence, directly involved and in control of human government... He is also the sustainer of the laws of nature. All things are through him. He keeps the earth rotating on its axis. He keeps the sun far enough away so that the earth does not incinerate into ash. He holds the stars in the sky. And get this. Did you know that the Lord knows every star by name? Psalm 147, verse 4 says that. He upholds all aspects of creation. He keeps our heart pumping, our lungs inflating, and our brain functioning. Do you realize that as you sit where you're sitting right now in this building, God is sustaining your existence? Do you realize that it's by no happenstance or accident that you are here today listening to a young Baptist preacher preach? It's no accident. Do you realize that your entire past, earthly and eternal future, is in the firm grip of an omnipotent, omniscient, righteous God? Do you realize those things? You can say yes or no. If so, then let me challenge you and ask you, when was the last time you thanked God? When was the last time you woke up in the morning and said, God, thank you for not killing me in my sleep last night. Thank you that my feeble, broken body is still standing straight up. Thank you, Lord, for the blood that's running through my veins. When was the last time you thanked Him for exposing your sound doctrine? Most of all, when was the last time you thanked Him for putting the right people in your path to preach the gospel to you? When was the last time you praised God for His sovereignty? In your personal eternal salvation. Brothers and sisters. Any less understanding. Of everything I've just said up until now. We cannot give glory to God. But the deeper you understand passages like this one. And Colossians 1.17. The more. You will glorify God. We look at creation and. We go outside, and especially in where we live, right? It's so beautiful, the mountains, the water, the trees. We go out there and we say, wow, we live in a beautiful place. But we tend to forget, perhaps even deny with our words or actions. God did not just create it. He's sustaining it. He keeps the mountains together. He keeps the trees growing He keeps the grass green. As one theologian says, there is no such thing as a maverick molecule. For from him and through him are all things. Now, the third third prepositional phrase. And to him. And to him is eternity future meaning that God is the final goal of everything. He is the aim of all things. All things have been created through him, and Colossians 1.16 says, for him. In other words, this third little prepositional phrase underscores the reality that all aspects of salvation are ultimately for him. Let me repeat that. Because, again, this is a God-centered sermon, not a man-centered sermon, right? Our salvation is for him. In other words, we need to understand that our election, justification, sanctification, and later glorification are all for God's glory. Ephesians 1, 5 and 6 says, In love. He predestined us to sons, to, to adoptions as sons through Jesus Christ himself according to the kind intention of his will. To the praise of the glory of his grace. Did you get that? He predestined us to the praise of his glory. Philippians 2 verse 13 says, I'm speaking in the context of sanctification. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for what? For his, not our pleasure. The psalmist in Psalm 106 says that God rescued Israel from Egypt for his namesake. That he might make known his mighty power for his glory. Now, there are many more passages that, that we could go to to prove that, that the emphasis in salvation, physical and spiritual, is all for God's own glory. But time is escaping us. I seem to always have that problem on Sunday. But you get the gist, right? All things are from him. He is the originator. All things are through him. He is the instigator. And all things are to him. He alone. Deserves the glory for everything. This is the kind of theology we need to have. God is eternity past. He is within time. He is eternity future. Now. How do we respond to this God-centered theology? Great question, Paul tells us. At the second half of verse 36, we find a God-centered doxology. First, a God-centered theology, now a God-centered doxology. Okay. What we've seen so far is that Paul has written a tight, nifty bow around everything he said In Romans 11, excuse me, Romans 1 to uh, chapter 1135. With those three little phrases. Now he pens the concluding crescendo. And this is the proper response that we should have to our theology. Look in your Bible. It says, to him be the glory forever. Amen. Notice off the bat it says to him. Not to man, not to chance, not to luck, not to happenstance, not to good works, not to sacraments, not to anything or anyone else. To him be the glory alone. Soli Deo Gloria is implied here. glory in the new testament it's it's used in two distinctive ways there is the intrinsic glory of god and the ascribed glory of god it literally means in the original language to think or the noun form anyway is to think to recognize or to suppose okay so let's start there the word glory doxa which we get doxology from means to think or to recognize so primarily it means, at its core, a thought or opinion. So the doxa of man, the glory of man, is his opinion. Which you know very well is fickle, uncertain and fallible, often misinformed and based on error. But when doxa is applied... The person of God. Whom is absolutely true and changeless. It can only refer to the eternal mind and will. So I'll put it this way. To be more, to be clearer. The glory of God essentially boils down to his essence. His being, his moral attributes. Or as one preacher says, the godness of God. There is none like him, is there? And he intends to be uniquely set apart. Isaiah 42 verse 8 says, I am Yahweh. That is my name. I will not give my glory to another. He will not share his mind. He will not share his attributes with another. So when we use the term glory attributed to God... To the Lord, Yahweh, we speak of His infinite perfection, divine majesty, and holiness. Theologians have called the doxa of God His intrinsic glory, alluding to the sum and substance of all that God is. He is from everlasting to everlasting. His name is forever. And His attributes are summed up in His glory. Does that make sense? Clear as mud. If it is, go home and study glory a little bit deeper. But God's intrinsic glory, his essence, his being, his perfect bind is not what Paul has in view here. He doesn't need us to affirm that. Because he is. But when we use the verb glorify in reference to glorifying God, it carries a little bit different nuance. We understand that God is by nature altogether perfect, but we are not. So what does it mean for fallible man to glorify, to think, to recognize, or to suppose an infallible being? Well, in order to have a thought or opinion about somebody, you have to know something about that person, right? To have any thought of God, you have to know Him. And that implies you do have to know very much about God's intrinsic glory. You need to have a deep wellspring of the doctrine of God, you need to know His attributes. You didn't know who he is. Because if you do not know that intrinsic glory, then you will not be able to think rightly or glorify God. Because we have seen his intrinsic glory in Scripture. In the person of Christ, we can rightly ascribe the glory of God. In the praise and the honor and worship that we give to him. So, to boil it down, after all that, glorifying God is simply ascribing to Him His full recognition. Now, that definition is carefully worded. Every word is important. Glorifying God is ascribing to Him His full recognition. The more we understand his intrinsic glory, the more we can ascribe glory to him. That is why, brothers and sisters, it's so important that we have a deep, lofty understanding of who God is. Because the higher our theology, the higher our praise to God. Now, let me share an unpopular opinion with you. The fervency with which we worship had little, if any, to do with our flavor of music and the emotions you feel on Sunday morning. What induces or what catapults into a God-centered doxology is the depth of knowledge you have about him. If we have a shallow understanding of who God is, then our worship will be shallow. And if our worship is shallow, what is the cost? We start to glorify ourselves. And we do this often by thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought, right? I'm I'm pointing the thumb too, so just so you know. We do this often by giving too much credit for ourselves, you know, look what I did look what I've accomplished We glorify self more than God when we When we impose our own personal and traditional preferences as the top standard And we glorify self more than God by being consumed With our own agenda and goals again Your chief end, your primary goal is to glorify God. So, if we want to glorify God every day, then we must wake up every day anew, possessing that deep well of knowledge, and think in your mind that God is owed our full recognition for every crumb, for every breath, for every heartbeat. We owe him our full recognition for our children. Our children don't belong to us. Our children belong to God. They are his creation. And they are ultimately accountable to him too. We need to wake up and ascribe to God the full recognition due his name for our salvation. Typically, when I say something like that, I say amen. And I solicit some type of response, just to make sure you're awake and I'm not boring you to death. But today, I don't have to. Because we get to read an inspired amen. Look at the end of verse 36. Paul ends this God-centered doxology with an amen. That's an inspired amen. That means God wanted it there. And if God wanted it there, it has meaning. Do you know what amen means? It means it is true. It means yes! It means it is right. The word is not simply here to function as a concluding marker. It's not add, added there for dramatic effect. It's not added there because of tradition. But when we say amen a lot, I think sometimes we forget that, don't we? It's like saying, and they lived happily ever after the end. Sometimes we, we, we act as if that's what we think amen means. But it's not. Amen indicates Firm affirmation. When you say amen to anything, you are in in effect saying, let it be so. "To To God be the glory, let it be so. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever, let it be so. So, because God is creator and sustainer, because He is in total control of your life, because we know we are saved by faith through grace and Christ, so that all creation may stand up and proclaim, look at what God has done. Because all of that amazing truth, because of it, God's people should yell "Amen." This is what the reformers discovered. The reformers discovered this precious truth during the Reformation. A deep God-centered theology was foreign to laymen, and ascribing recognition to God solely. Deo Gloria was galaxies away from the medieval church. But 500 years ago, 500 years ago on Tuesday, October 31st, that's Tuesday, right? The Lord of heaven by his decreed will displayed yet another act of grace and mercy to the church by compelling a small group of courageous men. To bring reform. And they sought to put God's glory. As the chief goal. If there be any other standard than God's word. Man is glorified. If justification is earned by sacraments. Man is glorified. If salvation is merited by good works. Man is glorified. If there are any other mediators to be found on earth or in heaven, God is stripped of his glory. And if man is glorified, God is not. If God is not glorified, then that means we know him not. So to conclude our series And the message for today Let's consider these final questions Or just one How about just one Do you sincerely long To glorify God Or would you live a life In which you continually Rob God of his glory By trusting the human tradition rather than God inspired word? Would you rob God's glory by staking your eternal soul on a ritual rather than standing confidently with the imputed righteousness of Christ by faith? Would you rob God of his glory by believing he deserved forgiveness? Rather than viewing your adoption as a son or a daughter as a free gift of grace. Would you rob God by fleeing to a sinful human mediator and false sacrifices? Rather than jolting to Christ. The only mediator between God and man. If you are to glorify God go to the scripture for truth alone trust Christ by faith affirm that you have been given a sufficient grace in Christ go to him alone as the Lamb of God only then can you truly glorify God Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much, God, that you have revealed a glimpse of your glory in the scripture. If there are any here today who have not fully trusted in Christ alone, that they do not believe that your sacrifice on the cross was sufficient to pay the penalty of our sin, please, Lord, show this to them. Your sacrifice on the cross was enough. And through faith you have given us your righteousness in exchange for our sin. So therefore we can stand in your presence. We don't have to fear hell. We don't have to fear judgment. We can carry on with our life while it lasts on this earth glorifying you and we long for the time where we will spend eternity glorifying you thank you father for this time together